you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money Podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance. With this week's hosts, Dylan Wilson, Associate Portfolio Manager, and Josh Shalek, Portfolio Manager with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome to Bare Naked Money. We have Josh and Dylan here today. So what we're talking about today, Dylan, one of the most common questions that we get is on CPP. This is a question we always get from pre-retirees, people that are looking to start drawing on some of their retirement savings. CPP comes up all the time. There's some simplicity to it, but also some complexity to it. So what do you find is the most common question with regard to CPP that you're getting? Yeah. So f- from my end, the, the most common aspect that I think people are trying to tackle is, is it beneficial for me to take it at 65, defer it all the way to 70 or take it early at 60? So there's a couple of different nuances to to each of those. And just like everything else in this industry, it's a little bit of a loaded question because it depends on your unique circumstance. So always start with the caveat is make sure that uh, you speak to a qualified financial professional uh, before moving forward. But Generally, what we talk about is the vast majority of Canadians take it at 65. You do have the option to take it as young as 60, but every year that you take it early, you're going to get a reduction in that CPP amount. One thing to think about is what is my risk tolerance? CPP is relatively guaranteed. It's not an absolute, but it's very well funded. It's not a public benefit like OAS comes out of our tax coffers. And that could be something that is cut in later years due to changes in the tax system. But CPP is something that every Canadian who's working is paying into. So that's a benefit that they're entitled to. So some arguments that I hear on either side is you can take it early and you could invest the difference. That would depend on what your risk appetite is and how well your investments are going to do. There's always a level of risk that's involved with that. Whereas CPP is, I don't want to use the word guaranteed because there's not much in this world that's guaranteed, but it's, you know, extremely stable. So by taking that a little bit later on, you're locking in uh, a rate of return versus bringing the risk into your hands. And then on the flip side, if you defer it, then you're locking in that guaranteed or somewhat guaranteed rate of return for longer. That can also be beneficial depending on what your risk tolerance is. A scenario could be if someone is extremely risk adverse, then deferring that CPP could be beneficial to them because if they're looking at a portfolio that is mostly in money market funds or a GIC that has a low rate of return, and we're talking about interest rates in 2021 here, then locking that in could be beneficial. But once again, it's something that you have to look at with a qualified professional because everybody's situation is a little bit different. Yeah. Right. Take it a little bit early for every month that you take it before 65, it reduces your CPP by 0.6% per month. And for every month you defer past 65, it increases it by 0.7% per month. So certainly some pretty big differences there. Aside from the risk tolerance side of things, Dylan, what else comes up into the conversation for people when deciding, do I take it early or do I take it late? And let's bypass the strict mathematical calculation, what other things are are meaningful to people when they are looking at their CPP? Yeah, I think uh, another good point, it's a bit mathematical in nature, but is longevity. 
right? How long am I going to live? I think that's important when you're talking about CPP because you have to look at CPP as a little bit of a defined pension plan. If you're fortunate enough to have one of those three, a company, and not a lot of businesses have those today, but there's still some companies that offer them and especially too in, in government services. This is once again, back to that topic of somewhat guaranteed. So the longer you live, the more beneficial it is to you because you're going to get that payout amount every year. Most actuarial tables that I've seen, and the government's kind of hit this on point, is if, if you hit age 65, your life expectancy is 82. And if you defer CPP till age 70, then the break-even point is age 82. Meaning that if you live longer than that, then you should be in the black and should be in a net positive. That, But if you unfortunately pass away before that, then it could be a detractor. Now there's a couple of different variables that that come into play there. That's a little bit high level, but that's a nuts and bolts of it from a longevity perspective. Yeah, I, I think as the joke goes, we make it often, tell us when you're going to die, we'll tell you when to take CPP. <laughs> you know, it's a very easy mathematical calculation if you know exactly what that endpoint is going to be. But for most people, it's, it's uh, not that easy. I guess the, the other thing is a lot of people feel like, and this is more of an emotional thing, not a mathematical thing, but a lot of people feel like I've been paying in to CPP for 40 years. I'm going to get my fair share and I'd hate to die at 63 before collecting a single dollar. So I want to collect it as early as possible. Now, again, that might be a little bit emotional, maybe not the best financial decision, but if it's really going to be meaningful to you to stick it to the man and collect a little bit of your CPP, that's something else that comes into to play once in a while as well. Yeah, that's something I hear all the time as well, Josh. And maybe it's because uh, we're a little bit younger. Maybe we take that mathematical approach to it. But what I hear from people who are, who are pre-retirees is that is an important factor and your perspectives and the emotions around it change uh, as you get closer to uh, to 65. Yeah. In 40 years when we're retiring, maybe we'll have the same strong emotional feelings that we definitely need our piece of, uh, of the pie that we put into for so long. Of course. Another question that I get sometimes is about OAS clawback. So OAS and CPP are different. Kind of like I mentioned before, OAS is a benefit that comes out of our tax system where CPP is more of a defined benefit plan that uh, all Canadians participate in and the government has put together for us. Is it possible to prevent clawback, Josh, by deferring it? So it, it is possible. I think this comes into one of the aspects that we focus a lot of time on with our, our retirees or pre-retirees is tax planning. And this is really about long-term tax planning. A lot of people, I think, go into tax planning like, how can I minimize tax this year right now? And that's often the worst approach because sometimes you kick the can down the road and you cause a bigger problem for yourself at some point in the future. So there is a point in terms of the, your level of income where your OAS gets what's called clawed back. So some of your OAS that you're receiving, your old age security, the government actually pulls a little bit back from you. So by looking at the longer term picture, and all of the different sources of, of income that you may have, whether that's pension income, whether that's investment income, rental income, CPP, OAS, or something else. By looking at all those things in conjunction, you can determine when may be the best time for me to take my CPP and my OAS that can help avoid some of that clawback. For example, if it looks like your RSPs are so significant that you're going to be clawed back on your OAS when you start to withdraw some of those amounts from your RSP, 
you can defer your old age security till age 70, which gives you an extra five years to potentially wind down some of those RSPs and maybe give you a little bit of more wiggle room income wise when you start collecting your old age security. Not a slam dunk, doesn't work all the time, but sometimes with some strategic tax planning, you can make it work. Yeah. So if this is something that is on people's minds, Josh, how would you recommend they approach that to figure out if that's something that would be suitable uh, for them and, and benefit them from a tax perspective? Yeah. Well, usually we're looking at the full picture financial plan for a client. And again, really what it comes down to is talking to somebody or doing the work yourself, but looking at all the financial planning aspects that would come into that. And often it, it, it also comes down to involving a qualified tax professionals. We have those qualified tax professionals on our team, which sort of makes that process a little bit more seamless, but any type of CFP certified financial planner should be able to help somebody with those types of projections. Right. So another kind of question that, that we get all the time when we start talking about CPP, just because I think it's the next topic on people's mind, just because there is a little bit of that morbidity factor that comes into it is talking about wills and why they're important. You think you could share some thoughts on why people should have a will or why they shouldn't? Yeah. I'd say just about everybody should have a will of some sort. And why is it important? We just talked about not having access to money that you've saved for so long with CPP. The same thing is true with your will. Do you want to have some control over how your assets, how the wealth that you've built up gets distributed upon your death? Maybe you have your kids that you really want to take care of or a spouse that you definitely need to take care of. That's That will is going to tell the people that are distributing your assets, how that, that, that should happen for you. Maybe you don't care about your kids and they've uh, taken way too much from you over the course of your life and you want to give it to charity or your favorite niece or whatever it is. The will is going to be able to articulate that for those that are left behind for you. And for most people, I think for just about everybody, that's extremely, not only does it, it cover the asset distribution, but there are a couple other aspects there, Dylan, that, that need to be taken care of in the will? Yes. Yeah, so there's everything that you need to get sorted out after you die should be addressed in one way or another in the will. So things like burial preferences, right? If you want to be buried in the ground, if you want to be cremated, if you want your body present at the service that you have after you've passed away, if there's any special gifts or bequests, I actually just went through this process myself, started taking my own advice which was a good step forward and put together my end until you actually go through the experience. I don't think a lot of people realize how much goes into it. So that might be something to think about. So we do think it's important to, for everyone to put one together, just as long as they're the age of majority in that province that they live in, or if they have assets in other provinces too, uh, it can be beneficial to, to have a will in that jurisdiction as well. But there's just so many nuances that happen after we die and everybody's unique and has their own preferences. So having a document that makes it relatively clear of what you want to happen can provide guidance to your executor or your executress who's helping put that all together for you once you pass away. Yeah. Now I'm glad you brought up the executor thing, Dylan. Maybe explain a little bit more about what the executor actually does and then maybe give some people some pointers or tips about things to think about when choosing an executor? 
Yeah. So an executor and executrix is a position that comes into play once you pass away. And the responsibility of that individual is to execute the wishes that are provided in the will. So that's going to basically, it's going to encompass all those things that we just talked about, distributing funds to the beneficiaries of your will. This person is then going to act on behalf of your business or your financial interests once you pass away. They could be involved in collecting debts, paying bills, selling property or businesses, filing your final tax return, and organizing your funeral or burial wishes. So this is a job that can be extremely time-consuming. It's also very stressful and important. We've seen many people go through this. There's some estates that are extremely cut and dry, and there's other ones that are overly complex. So in terms of a timeline, some estates are open and closed within 30 to 90 days. Other ones can go on for several years, depending on the state of the person's affairs, what their wishes are, or if they have significant assets, whether that's personal or business. The other thing that you want to make sure when you're deciding who it's going to be your executor, your executrice, is that they're a competent person and they're able to deal with these affairs. So a lot of times people will name their spouse or a family member, and we find that can be adequate for the first death, but sometimes upon second death, things can get a lot more complicated and that's not an end-all be-all rule. Once again, this is really situational. Everybody's financial circumstances and the stipulations of their will are going to be a little bit different. So it's something that you have to you know, sit down and, and talk with a qualified professional. Typically an estate lawyer can help you with this kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of estates, so they'll have to deal with creditors. They'll have to deal with courts, lawyers, Canada Revenue Agency. I'm sure everybody has a little bit of experience with that uh, and how fun that can be. So you want to make sure that this person is up to the challenge and has the time and the availability to be able to tackle this. Yeah. So if for what it's worth, one, you got to choose your executor very wisely based off of all these attributes and and details that you just mentioned, but two, it's not a job where there's going to be a lot of thanks given for it. So you got to have somebody that's pretty committed to doing a good job, despite it being a bit of a thankless role ultimately. Yeah, for sure. People ask sometimes, what are the, the attributes that I would look for when I'm naming an executor? And we try to help them out in that regard. So you want to make sure that person is available. And what I mean by that is you want to make sure that they're going to be alive when you pass away. Typically naming somebody who's older than you is not as wide. You want to make sure that they're you know, aware that they've been named executor and they're going to agree to it. Uh, a lot of times people will just write somebody down and not have that conversation with them. And you know, that's important for a couple of reasons. One is you want to make sure that they're willing and able to do that because there is a system in place where you can renounce your duties as an executor. And if it goes all the way down the line, it can be a decision that's made by a court. So you want to try to avoid that if possible. And then you also want to make sure that they're going to spend the time and execute your wishes with care. So make sure that they're on board and there can be some decisions with burials that you might be pretty, pretty adamant, or you want to make sure that goes uh, you know, smoothly and isn't changed last minute. So you want to make sure that person is, is well aware of what those wishes are and will respect them. Yeah, I guess, unfortunately, we've seen our fair share of death and our fair share of these issues. And I think it's time and time again, we're reminded of how complex these things can be. 
and how important it is to have somebody that's that's competent, that's dealing with them and, and dealing with them in a uh, prudent manner as they get worked out, because there's a lot to think about, as you said. For sure. So uh, one thing that kind of caught my ear there uh, a little while ago, Josh, was you were mentioning about charitable donations. And the, that's a question that, that I've been asked a, a couple of times. Do you think you'd be able to shed some light on how people can address philanthropy or charitable giving in their will? Yeah. So it's something that I think a lot of people overlook. Once they've taken care of their, their families, their immediate families, and maybe those that are closest to them, where do you look next? What do I do with potentially all of this wealth that I've built up over time? And it's not an easy answer. Maybe there's a pet involved that you want to, to take care of, and that's perfectly fine. But absent that, looking at to, to, to charity is typically a, can be a very effective, a very rewarding way to pass on some of your wealth to those who need it. And most charities have mechanisms to receive assets or donations directly from an estate or as, as part of the final directive in a will. Uh, and not only can it give you a bit of a rewarding feeling, but also there can be a bit of a tax advantage there for you as well. So it's something that we remind people often is, hey, think about what causes mean a lot to you if you are going to have some wealth left over and think about how you may be able to support those causes through charitable giving. And hey, maybe save a little bit of tax dollars at the end of the day as well, which I don't think anybody's too upset about. So always, it's always a benefit when we pay a little bit less to the CRA. I think everybody can agree with that. Yeah, that's for sure. That's one thing that I think you'll find universal acceptance of. For sure. Is there any benefits to giving to charities in a well versus, let's say, giving now? I think that's something that's on a lot of people's minds is, hey, I want to give to charities while I'm alive. I want to be able to enjoy the act of giving and I want the charities to get access to the money sooner. Are there benefits to deferring it or negatives to donating now that people should be aware of? There's just a cap on how much you can claim in terms of a tax credit as a percentage of your total income. So uh, I believe the numbers are, Dylan, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you can claim a tax credit up to 75% of your total income during your living years. And after you've passed away, 100% of your total income for charitable donations. So there can be a slight benefit there if you are to defer some of your your contributions. Another way to to put that same type of act into place is to get a life insurance policy. You can actually take a life insurance policy on yourself. You pay the premiums and the charity can be the beneficiary of that life insurance policy. So there's a few different ways to skin the cat here, so to speak. And there are some minor pros and cons to donating today versus donating in, in your will. But I think for the most part, it comes down to what will be more meaningful to you. In very rare cases, does it really become a huge tax issue one way or the other? Yeah, that's, I couldn't agree more on the tax side. One topic that I attempt to make people aware of is once you do give when you're alive, that money is now left your possession. Sure. So you don't have access to that capital anymore. So you just want to make sure that there's enough funds within your financial plan, within the asset pool that you have access to, to take you to the end. Giving today, I, I 
do charitable giving on my own. So I can attest to how good it feels. And I definitely encourage everybody to do that as well. But you just want to make sure that you don't stretch yourself too much. And that can be a benefit too of giving in the will is that you can stipulate how much gets donated from what's left of the assets in your estate. And that could ensure that you do have the longevity of your capital. So for a lot of people, I find it's blend. And like you mentioned, there's some tax benefits to waiting a, a little later on, which can be beneficial to people as well. Another thing that, that caught my mind there is you mentioned pets there, Josh. A question I get from parents, maybe moving away just briefly from the pre-retirees and the retirees is they want to put a will together, but they find the process is, is very time consuming especially when you're working, which is understandable. But a big topic they have a hard time addressing is establishing guardianship for their children. Do you have any comments or you know helpful tips on how to approach that process? I, th- I think you've covered what would be helpful there and some of the other topics that we've covered, Dylan. If you want to, one, communicate this. If somebody's surprised that, hey, a store has dropped two new babies on their doorstep when you pass away, I don't think that's going to be helping anybody. So communication is absolutely key. And of course, finding, uh, again, people that are competent and willing and, and eager to take on that responsibility. It's not something to be taken lightly. Of course, it's going to be uh, a big challenge and a big burden on whoever is is taking on that challenge for you. So again, communication, important, and probably the most important thing. The other aspect of it is this is not only a lifestyle burden, but also a financial burden. So this is another aspect of your life where you want to consider insurance and life insurance. And is that something that you need to continue to support those that you leave behind, whether it's a spouse or children, if both you and your spouse are are to pass away? It's really interesting that insurance has come up a couple of times, Josh. I, I know you and I both preach holistic financial planning and, and taking a big picture view. And we, on the outset of this conversation, wanted to have a discussion around CPP and, and wills. And we've had a you know pretty thorough discussion about insurance and tax planning as well. So it just goes to show how intertwined uh, everything is. And even when you're looking at one topic, other ones always seem to get pulled in. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. It's uh, a bit of a spider web for sure. So is there anything else? I just got some closing remarks just on the topics of CPPs, wills, executors, anything else that we talked about that from a high level point of view, it's important to to get people thinking about, or if they're on the fence about maybe, do I set up a will now? Do I do it later? That would help them get to that decision quicker. I'll just cut right to the chase. If you're thinking about maybe setting up a will, you probably should have already set up that will. So just go ahead and do it. You're probably, <laughs> it's probably well overdue. I think that's a good, uh, a good point to, to wrap it up on then, Josh. Yeah. Any closing remarks on your end, Dylan? No, I don't think I could say uh, it really any better than just do it today. I did mine a couple of weeks ago and it felt amazing. Yeah. Good stuff, Dylan. Thanks uh, for joining us today. Thanks. You too. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.
iPrivate Wealth is a trademark and business name under which iPrivate Wealth Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, as an offer to sell, or the solicitation of an offer to buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.